Hello and welcome to EMS Research with Professor Bram, where we talk about research-related issues that matter to those who work in emergency medical services. Today we'll be talking about the role of media in disaster management, so stay tuned. Welcome to the EMS Research Vlog and Podcast from the studio here in Houston, Texas. I'm your host, Bram Duffy, a full-time paramedic and also a research fellow with the appointment at the Institute for Social Innovation at Fielding Graduate University. I welcome you to our show today. I actually have our research study. It's open now for first responders. So if you'd like to check it out or participate, I'd like to invite you to go to professorbram.com and click on the current research tab to apply. Before we get started, I want to share that I've written two books on communication. The most recent book has just been released called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings for life-saving and therapeutic outcomes. So you can check out the link to the book below and for sure hang out to the end and I'll be telling you more about it. So right now, Hawaii is dealing with an unprecedented wildlife, uh, wildfire crisis. And it's primarily on the island of Maui. These wildfires have become the deadliest natural disaster in the state's history with death toll has risen to over 115, I think. And thousands of homes have been destroyed, including the whole town of Lithania. Fire is the leading cause of federally declared disasters in Hawaii. And it's equal to the next three types of disaster combined, like the floods and the severe storms that Current situation's been fueled by a dry summer and strong winds from the passing hurricane, and all that allowed fires to race through all of the brush covering the island. With all this happening right in the media, a lot of folks have been um, armchair quarterbacking the situation, and I myself thought through how the fire was happening, but the alarms were not sounded, and to me, I was looking at it thinking, gosh, maybe it's a good thing they didn't sound those alarms because then instead of racing away from the fire, they might race in a a direction that would be more dangerous. And so um, because they think that there's a tsunami, you know, and um, I couldn't imagine having everything on fire around me and then also at the same time thinking that there's a tsunami happening also and um, having to decide, you know, which which way to go and, 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 uh, and why. So I, I know that a lot's been in the media, and I, I believe that's what resulted in their, um, one of their top folks uh, resigning. I don't know that necessarily, like I said, that it was the bad thing. That was the, um, the plan that seemed to have been followed. It's just that the resources were not there and the disaster was fast coming. From a disaster management perspective, this kind of situation has a lot of challenges. The scale of the disaster, the speed at which the fires have spread, and the number of people that have been affected just put a a really enormous pressure on these response efforts. And so now we have the destruction of residential areas, and all of that raises more questions about, you know, what's happening now with fire prevention measures for the future. But there's also concerns about the water resources for fighting the fire. Like, why wasn't there more water available? And all of these things have to be uh, researched and discovered so that we can have a better time with things. When I 
was in Hawaii, I was really impressed with the signage for evacuations, and it seems like a very safety-oriented place. And um, to see this happen, it's um, it's just shows that we can't stop planning and thinking through how to best handle these situations. This isn't just um, based on right now when this is being recorded. I look in the past, and this is the recent emergency that our nation faced. And, and now I look to Hurricane Adelia, and Hurricane Adelia is hitting Florida right now. It's one of the uh, most significant disasters that are, that are happening in the world. I have uh, friends who work for FEMA who are involved. I have friends who work in the, the ambulance world and private ambulance who are doing uh, staging and response efforts that are involved. And I actually tried to get um, from the field uh, like a chance to do an interview today with somebody, but all those folks are just um, are super busy. When it came through the Atlantic Ocean, it reached Category 3 status, and it's as of right now, it's tracking to go between Florida up to Georgia, and uh, it causes a significant amount of worry for people that are on those paths. The severity of the storm means that it could inflict a lot of damage wherever it hits, and that means high cost. We think about these responses differently because in some cases we're able to predict the emergency, which is in the case of hurricanes. But in other cases, it was a little bit more difficult to predict the fire emergency that has just happened. Now, of course, we can look at, at this from hindsight and say, well, either way, we could have done things better and expected these emergencies. But when it's happening, we see the hurricane coming and are able to stage resources. And with the, with the, with the fire, um, as soon as the alarm happened, the, you know, those, those um, opportunities weren't there so much. So the responses are, are really interesting because sometimes there's media attention that can affect what happens next. And that media attention can really help or, or hurt a situation. So, for example, I've been told by uh, experts who work in disaster management that one of the things that they've found is that when you have an, a, um, a disaster like a tornado, then that tornado is going to allow for the local community to do a lot more help. And it makes sense because the tornado only went through a certain part of the area. It's different because it wasn't expected. But what was expected is the hurricane. So when the hurricane happens, folks are evacuating and leaving and, and packing up. And uh, it comes and tears away a much larger section. And so the people aren't right there ready to help and respond. They're wiped out or already evacuated. So there are different considerations like this to think about when getting people help. I know that uh, the media helps influence these, uh, these things as well. Today, I thought it was really interesting that we could talk about an article that I saw just pop up in uh, ems1.com first, and then uh, I was able to link over to it. The article is in Pre-Hospital and Disaster Medicine, and the title is Unveiling the Strengths and Biases of Media Influence on Disaster Response. 
and it's uh, written by Derek Ten and Gregory Clotten. Derek is a Disaster Medicine Fellowship and has appointments both Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and also the Harvard Medical School. And then um, Gregory Clotten has the Disaster Medicine Fellowship in the same exact schools and um, and hospitals. And so we appreciate their efforts. I reached out by LinkedIn, and I got one email off as well, I'm working to see if they'd be a guest on our show. But I want to talk about what they did for um, a recent article. And media platforms and journalists do a lot with these disaster scenarios. They play an important role. Not only do they serve as the public eyes and ears on the ground, delivering this kind of vital information about what's happening, calling attention to assistance needs. They're also navigating the environment, this traumatic and destructive place. And it puts their health and mental wellness at risk. I know that uh, they're certainly less uh, used to dealing with um, this kind of death and, and disfigurement that, you know, that they may be exposed to. And the media's function goes a lot deeper than just reporting those facts because from a psychological perspective, media shapes how we emotionally engage and understand those things that um, are affected by disasters. And they help expose us um, to unfamiliar circumstances. And by doing that, they help stir up feelings of empathy because they help us understand what's happening from another person's perspective. And we can imagine seeing ourselves or our family members there. And so this influences how um, society reacts and distributes resources during these crises. And the article talked about how it's really crucial to recognize that media platforms and journalists, no matter if they're giving positive contributions to this disaster response or not, they can also have a negative impact. And so media, media bias, whether it's done by selective reporting or certain kinds of perspectives that they might have over others, it, it all can sway public opinion that affect policy decisions. So the ripple effect of this can be far-reaching, far and um, this stuff influences funding and also the healthcare responses on a global scale. It also shows in how things can be sensationalized, where the news outlet focuses on these stories that are more shocking and maybe just more dramatic so they can increase viewership. And this definitely can lead to other events that are ignored because the sensational thing rises to the top. And as a result, people might be getting news that's discombobulated, right? Just getting sensationalized stuff instead of um, consistent, um, good information. All of this is done under tight resources that the, the media has to uh, put out. There's only so much time. You know, one example is that the media might give more airtime to disasters that are happening in specific areas or countries and then at the same time ignore others because of some kind of geographical distance, political consideration, cultural bias, just the fact that it's not in our hometown and we don't see it and, and think about it. 
all these things can be influential. So imagine a scenario where a disaster in a rich country or politically influenced country gets a lot of media coverage. Maybe an area that has less of those things gets less coverage. There's one example that the article gives. In the 2010 Haiti earthquake, an example raised was that for that earthquake in Haiti, they were able to get $1,087 per victim when it comes to um, support. And we contrast that $1,087 with the Pakistan floods that happened a few months later those global donations only reached about $16. $1,087 versus $16, I guess we could pick apart this in all kinds of different directions, but they consider this to be a way to see this kind of disparity. And a lot of um, things contributed to the lack of donations, but some of the things that they cited were uh, donor burnout and geography, the disaster type, and that tenfold media coverage that the Haiti earthquake got over the Pakistan floods. The media has some kind of ethical consideration in this because it affects us dramatically. And let's say there's a big flood in two different countries and one country's rich and the other's not famous. There's things that um, point to the recent history where we see that there is a disparity and that people seem to have a different value. So something kind of like this happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. And different news channels focused on different aspects of the story believed based on what they believed in and what they could sensationalize. And so, for example... Um, some might talk about how important it is to get vaccinated while other channels would talk about uh, only the uh, concern for the, any side effects for the vaccine. And what happens is that this led to people getting a skewed understanding of the situation. And I've, I've been to journalism school and it is wild to me in undergrad, I did. And what's wild to me is that we don't have a balanced um, story in a lot of cases. What I've talked to my students about this, they tell me that the younger generation, those folks are keyed up to listen for those words that do push towards sensationalizing things. And so that thought that was brought forth in one of my classes from students was that maybe folks who are older um, have experienced a more balanced news in, uh, in their life. And so they might tend to uh, listen to what happens in the news and uh, believe that as a gospel. But folks who are younger haven't been exposed to that. So they have these key words that would throw them off to know that someone is biased in the, in the conversation or the presentation of the of the news. I think it's really interesting. It's sort of like an adaptation that we can see that, that folks have made, but it's really at the same time unfortunate because the newscaster and, and the news reporter, their ethical training is very much set up to understand that we show both sides of a story or, or, or all the significant sides of the story. And sometimes um, showing all sides of the story is difficult, and it's not as 
interesting or cool, but that's what's being asked of them because otherwise it's biased. And so it's important in all this to think about the different biases that go into this. And it's worth mentioning that news outlets sometimes make disasters seem more dramatic or more shocking than they really are to get more viewers. And this can lead to people misunderstanding the severity of the disaster. So with the rise of social media, there's also the risk for false information that spreads quickly. And then news channels uh, might stop covering a story because the crisis is considered over and there's something else to move on to that's, that can be sensationalized. So this recovery times in disasters, as we know, take a long time. News media might pop in and out in, the, in a way because our attention spans have uh, become short with this, fo- with this focus that happens on disasters, the way that they're... Um, covered. When it comes to this media bias, it's important for all of us to be smart about the news that we consume. And so we can do this by checking out different news sources and making sure that the facts add up and that in a way that try to get a variety of perspectives. And um, I can just say that one great practice is when you see some bit of information, maybe you'll first find out it because you were on social media and you saw the information. Well, it's good to uh, be able to uh, check that out in multiple places. So uh, one of the things that I have done has always been to look on dramatically opposing uh, news sites. So, for example, I might look at Fox News and then look at MSNBC so that I can see what both opposing viewpoint type news media outlets are doing. Government agencies and other organizations can play a big part in ensuring that disaster coverage is fair and balanced. So one way to do this is by building strong relationships with journalists and um, news outlets ahead of time. And that means that you give them some kind of access. And what happens in organizations that have trained media folks is that there is an opportunity to build those relationships before you um, get to get to the emergency. The media spotlight and, and pointing it the right direction can, can help with that. I've uh, enjoyed talking about this topic, and I want you to know that the reference for the story is at the, is at the end. But I must also mention that the latest book that I put out has just hit the shelves about two weeks ago. And what that means is that it's in my hand. It's cool to flip the pages of your own book. And I would be interested in talking you into seeing it as well, because this is a book that is designed for us to change the way we communicate with patients so that we could take advantage of some of the properties of hypnosis that are already there in the emergency. So one of the things we talk about is how our patients are frequently already in a hypnotic trance when we get to them so that there is no inducing them into some kind of uh, trance. It's already happening with their state of uh, shock. And so we want to take advantage of that by knowing the best way to communicate with people that are in that kind of mental strain. So that's what our book talks about. And I want to invite you to check it out. The name is Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings for Life-Saving and Therapeutic Outcomes. You can follow the link below, or you can go to almost anywhere to find it. 
by going to Rutledge, the publisher's website. I think they're doing some percentage off if you go there. And then uh, Amazon's easy to get my book also. The thing is, is that I had a friend talk to me the other day about wanting me to autograph their book. And I said, no, don't mail me the book. Then I have to mail it back to you. And there's all this mailing stuff. So let me know or send me proof that you got the book that I would love to send you an autograph sticker that you could just put inside the book cover. And uh, that way, uh, you know, we can have that connection that way. So I'd like to invite you to check out the book by uh, Four Arrows and myself. I'm doing a research project related to first responders who live in the United States. And I could really use your help if you don't mind being interviewed over a video call. So if you would, check it out by going to my website and fill out the form and see more information. It's at www.professorbram.com. So it's Professor B-R-A-M. Thank you again for listening. I look forward to sharing more insights with you in the next episode. If you enjoyed EMS research, tell your friends and like, share, and subscribe to help others get the message.